Thank you, Richard, for that generous introduction. Thank you all for coming. Uh, yes, uh, my old friend, Father Richard, is a perfect visual aid here uh, for a very good reason. I, I'm 58, and I think that when I was a boy, it would have been most unlikely that a Dominican would have been chairing a session with a title like this. Uh, 50 years ago, England, and the United Kingdom generally, was a Protestant society. There were, of course, Roman Catholics. The Dominicans had returned to St. Giles uh, in between the two world wars. But Roman Catholicism, having survived through the, from the Reformation to the present day, was still slightly outside national life, the mainstream. Now, of course, that is not so at all. Things have changed dramatically, as events in the last week have shown. With that Protestant identity of 300 years and more came a history, a particularly uh, complacent history, one might say, of glorious, uh, inevitable progression from tyranny to the light of Protestantism with certain memorable dates, the, the fires of Smithfield, the Armada, the glorious revolution, and so on. That was the way history was taught uh, when I was a boy, at least in mainstream schools, obviously not in Catholic ones. And uh, it's interesting uh, to, to note that in the last uh, few weeks, the opposition to the papal visit did not include any of that historiography at all. It was in, in entirely other grounds, and that's a mark of the shift in our society from something which was Protestant to something else, and it's not my job uh, to discuss what that something else was. What interests me, though, is the way we talk about history, the way that history changes as we change. From that Protestant story way back in the 50s through to uh, a much more varied story in the 1980s, which historians who love jargon called revisionism. Uh, this was a new view of the Reformation, it was not popular, it was not glorious, it brought misery to many, it was imposed by a monarchy which had all sorts of selfish motives. Um, it's a much more subtle uh, histor historiography than that, but that's some of the thoughts behind it. And as we've got through that, I think what we now need to do is to see what sort of balance we can achieve in our view of what happened in this English Reformation part of that great wider story of a Reformation stretching from the borders of Muscovy through to the Atlantic Ocean. Our little bit of it. What was it like? What was it? Uh, a cynical, political move, hated by the people uh, and only gradually accepted by them, gradually, grudgingly? Or was there something in that older narrative of a popular Protestantism. So I'm going to try and trace those fragments of the possible other picture. I'm being, if you want even more jargon, post-revisionist. Uh, and uh, Father Finn has mentioned my colleague at my old university, uh, Eamon Duffy, who has been, of course, one of the, the great voices in that uh, inspired rethinking of the Reformation which took place. Uh, my colleague, Christopher Haig, in this university was also another voice. Uh, what, what I noticed about the way in which they pursued the uh, story, and, and I was part of this myself at the time, was the sort of sources we used, which very often were those which would give you a picture of destruction and decay 
and uh, uh, occasional obstinate attempts to revi- revise that. In particular, church wardens' accounts, the accounts of the officials of churches as they painstakingly shelled out money in the reign of Edward VI to, to level altar st- to level altar steps, to take out images, to whiten walls. Inevitably, there was a rather depressing feel about it. And what did they buy in its place? Just a few books. It was easy to feel a romantic sadness about the beauty which had gone and the austerity which replaced it. Now, that was a source which was also slightly curiously regionally biased. Uh, it's uh, an inexplicable fact that the church warden's accounts, which survive from the 16th century, parish by parish, across the thousands of parishes in England, are actually much more um, numerous in the southwest of England, in Devon and Cornwall, which, as we'll go on to find out, were very traditionalist in their religion for quite a long time. So we're looking at a source which had biases built into it towards those parts of the country which really did not like the Reformation. And one thing which did come out of this painstaking look at um, uh, the, the Reformation on the ground, as you might say, parish by parish, was that even if people didn't like it, they went along with it. If the Tudor government said jump, then the people of England, for the most part, said, how high do you want us to jump? If the government said get rid of images, within six months they'd gone. This was a remarkably obedient country. This was a country which, if you mentioned the name of the king, his grace, you would take your hat off. Just sitting in the pub, you would do that. It is an automatic reaction which the Tudors had been extremely good at creating. This was a very obedient country, and they obeyed the crown for the most part. In the most remote parts, we can trace slight foot-dragging, for instance, in taking away church treasures at the end of Edward VI's reign. Uh, But... Uh, that's almost the exception. People did what the Crown wanted. So, therefore, are we looking at what my colleague Christopher Haig would have called a swift reformation from above, a quick reformation from above, imposed on people? That's what that data might suggest. (coughs) But let's get at a source in which we can meet ordinary people, and there is one source. They're wills. We have thousands on thousands of wills surviving from the 16th century, the last chance for everyone in this country to say how they wanted their possessions left. Uh, Not everyone made a will, but a remarkable amount of people did. And we cannot ignore this source. And it, it tells us all sorts of things. But one very interesting thing it tells us is about one particular sort of bequest, a bequest which seems very odd to us now. Because the first thing which people left in their wills was themselves. They left their soul to the divine, the divinity. But in the late medieval period, they did it in particular ways. Late medieval English Christians, what uh, Eamon would call uh, representatives of traditional religion, late medieval English Christians left their soul to a committee consisting of God, Our Lady, and the saints. I leave my soul to Almighty God, our blessed Lady, and the holy company of heaven. It was that sort of phrase. That's what you might call a traditional opening of a will. Now, the Reformation, of course, disturbed that, because Protestants uh, were not at all keen on the saints, and they were a bit iffy about Mary. 
Uh, they couldn't get rid of her. She was the mother of God, but she certainly shouldn't be involved in the business of playing around with people's souls. So Protestant wills change this formula about leaving one's soul, and it would be concentrating now on that central Protestant message that we can only be saved by Jesus Christ. So I leave my soul to Almighty God through the merits of my Saviour Jesus Christ in whom alone I do trust, or some such formula. So on the one hand, leave your soul to a committee, the traditional thing to do, or leave your soul to God through the merits of Jesus Christ, a Protestant thing to do. These are two possible formulae which we see contending with each other in the middle of the 16th century, from about 1530 to, to about 1560. There was a, a struggle going on between these formulae, a struggle which, as you might expect, was eventually won by the Protestant formula as the Reformation settled down in the reign of Elizabeth I. But in the mid-century, it's an interesting uh, tussle between these, and there are also lots of wills which clearly hedge their bets. They say, I leave my soul to God, full stop, uh, just in case there is trouble from the court afterwards. And there's not really much you can do with that middle ground. Let's call them the neutral wills. But still, we're left with this data, an extraordinary amount of it, and what you can do is lay these wills on a map decade by decade and see what patterns emerge. I'll just do a few samples for you of that. In the first three years of the reign of King Edward VI, 1547 to 1549, if we go to the county of Kent and look at wills there and we look for our Protestant formulae, we see that 8% of wills I have adopted this. Now, remember that the people who make their wills, by definition, tend to be elderly. So we're looking at the cohort of society which is most likely to be traditional, one might think. And yet 8% of them, in this very opening stage of an open reformation, are already making a Protestant protestation of their faith. Now, uh, I hope you've got a good mental map of England because I'm going to fly you across the map of England uh, to various places. And the place I'm flying you next to is Suffolk, East Anglia. Now, if you do the same uh, um, set of uh, investigations for Suffolk through the reign of King Edward VI, 1547 to 1553, no fewer than 27%, no less than 27% of wills have this Protestant formula. So this is an emphatic shift within a county, only just after the death of Henry VIII. So two little snapshots there. Think where Kent is, think where Suffolk is. So we're both in the southeast part of England. Let me fly you now to York, and there, before 1550, just two wills have this formula. I'm not talking percentages, two let me fly you now down to Devon and Cornwall. And there we find one in the same period, one Protestant formula. Now, to some extent, this is uh, thanks to the efforts of the Luftwaffe, who scored a direct hit on Exeter Record Office in 1942. But even given that we've lost many of the wills uh, from the Diocese of Exeter for that period, this is a remarkable finding and so what we're seeing, even by just using this one source, is that there are regionalities in the early Reformation in England. It's an affair of the southeast. Uh, and in the west, 
different pattern, as I mentioned already with our church wardens' accounts, and also different in the north. In, even in a great city like, like York, Protestantism is not yet the flavor of the month, but it is becoming so in the southeast. You can also take another temperature test on the mid-century religion of England by collecting Protestants. Now, this was done by uh, a, a very genial and splendid historian called John Fiennes back in the 1960s and 70s. He, he, he was, many of you may have known him as president of the Historical Association in the 1980s. Well, Fiennes collect, uh, de- devoted his life to collecting Protestants as some people collect stamps. And he built up lists of Protestants before 1558. And once more, you can, pr- you can plot Fiennes' Protestants onto a map. Uh, and he gathered 2,443 Protestants before 1558. The figure doesn't matter. Clearly, these are simply the people who got in some sort of record which John Fiennes could find. And, and these days, we could add far, far more. But even with this sample of 2,000, we've got something to just throw on the map of England and see what happens. Well, what does happen? Let's go to London first. And of all Fiennes's 2,000-plus people... 17% were identifiable through most of their lives with London. 17%. Take the road from London northwards into Essex, and you get 14%. 17 London, 14 Essex. Travel up into Suffolk and Norfolk, and you add 15%. Well, um, I'm no good with figures. And I'm, I'm no, no doubt many of you also glaze over when you hear them. Let me add them up for you quickly. Uh, you get through that 58% of all Fiennes' Protestants are in London, Essex, Suffolk, and Norfolk. So that really does confirm what we've already learned from the wills. And then Fiennes goes along the river valleys of England, the Thames going west up towards Lechlade and Gloucestershire then across to the other great river of England, the Severn, and going up from Bristol into the the Vale of Gloucester, there are significant percentages, too, of Protestants. But then, at the other end, exactly the same picture as the Wills. Somerset, Dorset, Devon, Cornwall. 2.5% of his Protestants in these areas. So we really are seeing a very regional picture it's the southeast, and it's the river valleys, the great transport routes of lowland England. And highland England, let alone Wales, are not yet involved in this story at all. This is all pre-1558 we're talking about here. And incidentally, uh, his Cambridge students and his Oxford students are interesting. He gathered 207 Protestants from Cambridge and 189 from Oxford, Note the slightly lower Oxford figure for a university which was actually bigger than Cambridge at the time. So that does rather bear out the common cliché that Oxford, not just the home of lost causes, but was the more conservative university in the 16th century. But still, 189, it's clear that not all undergraduates were listening to their traditionalist tutors. Oh, well, what has changed? (laughs) Yeah. Students not listening to tutors shock. But what we're getting here is the first sight of the Protestants of England, the people of England, and where they are. 
And thinking about these distributions makes it clear that we are not just talking about people who have been told to be Protestants. It is not just Christopher Hague's reformation from above. Because if we go, for instance, uh, and compare two different regions and see how they match up to the politics of what is happening in the church at the time. Let me take you again to Kent, which is, of course, the Diocese of Archbishop Cranmer, plus the much smaller Diocese of Rochester, which was occupied by one of Cranmer's stooges through from the 1530s. So Kent is a county where the church hierarchy is clearly very sympathetic to Protestantism early on. It's what Cranmer and his staff. And we've seen that Kent is, yes, an early Protestant stronghold. Well, that suggests, doesn't it, that Haig may be right. This is Protestantism coming down through preaching, through example, from a very powerful figure, Archbishop Cranmer. But, but let us go north of London to East Anglia. The Diocese of Norwich, Norfolk and Suffolk. Clearly, a lot of early Protestantism. But the church hierarchy is not like that. It is uh, uh, dominated by a succession of traditionalist bishops right through Edward VI's reign. Uh, There is very little sympathy from the church hierarchy towards the Reformation in which willy-nilly they are having to take part. No, here, this vigorous early Protestantism is going against the church authorities. So a different situation from Kent. This is a Reformation, you might say, from below, not from above. And contrast East Anglia, Norwich, Norfolk and Suffolk, conservative church hierarchy, signs of vigorous Protestantism, with another great diocese of England, Winchester, basically Hampshire. Now there, very little Protestantism on the ground and a conservative hierarchy. So three different situations in three different dioceses. How can we account for these different situations? I think we have to see what happened before the Reformation. The patterns I've described to you of where Protestants are, where they plot on the map, through fines, through wills, and so on, matches exactly the pre-Reformation distribution of lollardy, dissent, the English movement before Martin Luther had ever been heard of. There were lollards in the valleys of the Severn and the Thames. There were lollards in the towns and villages of East Anglia and in Kent. And they seem to have deserted, in a sense, their lollardy to join the Protestant cause once the Reformation started happening. So here we've got something quite interesting about the English Reformation. Rather as in the old self-congratulatory account of Protestant history, the Lollards were significant. They did produce enthusiasts for the Reformation in the country as it uncertainly grappled with this European phenomenon coming across the North Sea. And there were things which Protestants did add. Protestant reformations abroad did, of course, add to this existing mix. Because one thing about the Southeast is that it is a uh, a coastline, it is a place of ports, and Fiennes' Protestants are interestingly clustered around the ports of England, the south coast, the east coast, right up to Newcastle-on-Tyne. It's clear that sailors, those travelling on ships, do bring the Protestant message with them. Ah, One bilious clergyman in Bristol, uh, the canon of 
Bristol Cathedral called Roger Edgeworth actually preached on this very subject. He said that evangelical Protestant religion was coming in uh, uh, on the dock side along with other things. I quote, Where little concourse of strangers is, there is plain manner of living. But in port towns they be of another sort. The Germans and Saxons bring in their opinions, by which he meant Protestantism. The Frenchmen, their new fashions. Other countries given to lechery run to the open bars or stews. So you see, conservative old canon Edgeworth thinks that Protestantism is a bit like venereal disease. It's a thing that nasty foreigners bring you. And there is something in that. Uh, <laughs> something in that. Let me, let me draw your attention to one English port town, which you might not spot. Its name is Calais. Up to 1558, Calais was an English town. If you go there and look at the main parish church, you'll see it's actually English architecture, very unusual, not French. And it sent, of course, MPs to Parliament uh, from the reign of Henry Henry VIII through to Mary's reign when uh, they could no longer come. But it was also a garrison town. England had no standing army at the time except in two places, a standing garrison in Berwick-on-Tweed against the Scots and one in Calais against the French. Now, who is in that garrison? Very interesting that a lot of the recruitment for this garrison was actually Welsh. There's an extraordinary chronicle by a man called Ellis Griffith, entirely in Welsh, about Calais and about the spread of the Reformation because he was an enthusiastic Protestant. And I think one of the themes which has been lost in the story of the English Reformation is the importance of Calais, particularly for the Welsh, that these Welsh soldiers spent their time in this port town, miles from home. They went there because, of course, there's no no money in Wales. They're they're getting money, sending it back home. But they go home eventually, and they take their opinions with them, opinions once more. That is probably one of the the, the chief sources for the early Welsh Reformation. But it takes time. I commend to anyone wanting a doctoral thesis the importance of Calais in the English Reformation. But coastal ports generally, it's extraordinary to see the little ports get their little knots of Protestants right up into Scotland in unexpected places like Dumfries, where there are early Protestants in the same way. And this must be via England, via ships, just hopping around the ports of England. And so by 1558, then, we do have something which we can call a real reformation from below in England. It is partial. Everywhere, these people are probably a minority, but they are a very significant minority. And once they have the impulse of preaching, it is going to grow very rapidly indeed. Take, again, East Anglia, where I grew up, Norfolk and Suffolk. Those of you who know that delectable area will know that it is dotted with wonderful churches, wonderful medieval churches, which were being financed and furnished right up to the Reformation. Beautiful, wonderful furnishings still there. In other words, it is an area of extraordinary traditional fervour in Eamon Duffy's terms. And if you look at his pictures in Stripping of the Altars, they are mainly from Norfolk and Suffolk. And quite right, too. Lovely, lovely things. But if you go to Suffolk or Norfolk in 1590, 60 years after the Reformation, a very different picture indeed. 
One Father John Gerard, uh, a member of the Society of Jesus, worked undercover very bravely in Suffolk during the 1590s. And he said that his job was extremely difficult because although he could hop from recusant house to recusant house, they were surrounded by most fierce Protestants, as he put it. The whole tone of this region had changed within two generations. And I don't think that that is surprising. This was clearly an area of white-hot Catholicism in the 1530s, as well as that lollody which we've identified. White-hot Catholics. And it is those people who became white-hot Protestants. They went through the same experience as did Martin Luther, that for most of them, to be told that the old system didn't work was an extraordinary shock. And once the pulpits of East Anglia were doing that to them, they had to find something. It was not the indifferent who became Protestants. It was those who were the most deeply felt, fervent Catholics, who felt that the old church had betrayed them, had betrayed the, the, the thing most important to them, their souls. And if you want to understand why Protestants smashed up churches, that is at the heart of it. This terrible sense of having been cheated, betrayed out of their salvation. That is the source of so much of the violence of the Reformation. There in Martin Luther, but I see, I see it also in all those mutilated images in the churches of Norfolk and Suffolk. And I also suspect that this was a message which had more impact on ordinary people than it did on the educated. It was possible for clergy, with their theological training, such as it was, or gentry, with their stake in uh, the educational system, to filter out much preaching. Preaching was a theatrical performance, and it, it could entrance ordinary people who had no other source of information than the pulpit or perhaps some pamphlet being read at them. Ordinary people appreciated this. And so a reformation from below gathered strength bit by bit. And then in the reign of Edward VI, it met a regime for the first time in the boy king's uh, advisors and this fervent teenage boy himself, which encouraged the reformation without the ambiguity of his monstrous old father, Henry VIII. And now we see a situation in which conservatives, traditionalists, have a real problem. It is not just that the regime is now against them. They face the problem of what you do when you hate what is going on in a huge change of policy, change in society, but you don't quite know when to say no. How far should you cooperate? How far should you resist? For instance, when the government imposed on the people of England a vernacular liturgy, a liturgy in English, in 1549, what should you do with that fact? When you came to the Holy Communion as a priest or a faithful uh, layperson, should you just accept it as a complete change, or should you try and dress it up a bit as if it were the old Latin Mass? It is quite clear that that happened on a large scale. We know that because the Protestant bishops bitterly complained about it, that so many clergy were donning their vestments, they were using the old gestures, they were trying to make it feel as much like the old Latin Mass as possible. Now, was that an act of subversion of the new liturgy? Or was it an attempt to reach out to it, to make a compromise with what uh, His Grace, the King of England, wanted them to do? 
Very difficult to judge in that. But that is the headache of conservatives in this situation in the reign of Edward VI. Already so much had gone in the destructive work of Henry VIII. The monasteries had gone. The chantries had been ridiculed. Purgatory had been outlawed. Henry VIII had actually forbidden people and preachers to use the word purgatory, uh, which was extremely awkward for conservative preachers like my friend Roger Edgeworth. They had to say that thing or something like that. And if purgatory is gone, what do you do as a traditional-minded Catholic? This is a, a huge central component of the old religion. And people had accepted grudgingly often no doubt miserably, the dissolution of the chantries, the dissolution of the monasteries. Above all, they had been told for 20 years, from 1530, that the Pope was a very bad man indeed. And that stayed with them. And what did that do to all the other doctrines which the Pope believed in, such as the transubstantiation in the Mass? Did you reject that because the Pope was a bad man? even though you were still very traditional-minded in the way you approached religion. Uh, after all, transubstantiation had first been proclaimed as uh, the, the best way of understanding the miracle of the Mass at a papal council in the Lateran Palace of the Pope in 1215. So what did that do to that doctrine? I think it's very interesting. If you look at a rebellion which did happen in the West Country in 1549, the so-called Prayer Book Rebellion, when the English prayer book was introduced, uh, a whole load of traditionalist demands came from the rebels, really restoring the old world. Monasteries should be brought back. Cardinal Paul should come back. He was, after all, a West Country nobleman. But not one mention of the Pope. In all that, not a single mention of the Holy Father in Rome. These rebels who were fighting and eventually died for traditional religion did not mention the Pope when they approached the government. But they did rise in that hot summer of 1549. They rose in Devon Cornwall. They rose in Oxfordshire, where two parish priests were hanged from their church towers after the Reformation, after the suppression of the rebellion. They rose in Yorkshire. They rose in Hampshire. Rebellions were all over England in 1549, and also in East Anglia, too, but there's a very curious thing about the rebellions which happened in Norfolk, Suffolk, Essex, Kent, Surrey, Sussex, in that summer of 1549. They did not rant against the new religion. In fact, they used it. We have in the church warden's accounts of one parish in Norfolk the purchase of psalm books to go off to the camp in Mao's Old Heath, outside Norwich. What were these psalm books? They were the new metrical psalm books for the Protestant liturgy. These people were buying psalm books so that they could go and sing the praises of the Lord in this great camp which would sort out the, the, the injustices of the realm in Norwich because they sincerely believed that the Protestant government would back them. And we have letters from the government, from the Privy Council, to the leaders of these camps in East Anglia saying, you proclaim the gospel as we do. Cannot you hear the gospel message of obedience to the crown? Well, no, the rebels could not. But they were still 
in no way associated with the sentiments of those Western rebels. Very significant story comes from no less a person than Matthew Parker, Elizabeth I's Archbishop of Canterbury. And he wrote uh, in very fine Latin an account of Kett's Rebellion in which he'd been involved as a horrified witness. Uh, Parker was a Norwich man, came from Norwich, and he travelled up from his Cambridge college in 1549 to preach to the rebels, part of the frenzied efforts by the government to get them back into line. Interesting that the government knew that Protestant preachers would be the people who would actually influence these people. So Parker went to Mousehold Heath, where the great camp of the rebels was in 1549, got up in his makeshift pulpit, and he started preaching obedience. And the crowd turned ugly. It looked as if they might rush the pulpit and lynch him. And at that moment, Parker tells us, there was a church choir on hand beside him, run by a man called Sir Thomas Conyers, the Reverend Thomas Conyers, who was a parish priest in Norwich at the most evangelical Protestant church within Norwich. And Conyers's choir struck up the Te Deum. They started singing the Te Deum. And the crowd was so entranced, they all turned to listen, and Parker slipped out of his pulpit and ran away as fast as his legs could carry him and didn't stop till he got back to Cambridge. Now, Parker tells us this story to illustrate the the disgraceful, uh, absolutely insubordinate uh, fury of these crowds, that they were just no better than uh, rogues. But, of course, the real message of the story is that these people were entranced by the liturgy of the new prayer book. They heard an evangelical choir singing the Te Deum in English, and they loved it. That thing's a very significant moment. This was a Protestant crowd already in 1549. And its message was a message of commonwealth, a word which now has a rather different meaning. At the time, it meant that sort of organic unity between the crown and all the people of England, where justice would be done, a very resonant word, commonwealth. And so the leader of the camps, the gatherings in Kent, was actually known as the Commonwealth of Kent, It's clearly a word which came out of his lips all the time, a commonwealth of Kent. Now, who had started this talk of commonwealth? No lesser person than Thomas Cromwell, the great minister of Henry VIII in the 1530s. This was a shared rhetoric between Protestant politicians at court and Protestant people in the localities. This was a rising of excitement, not of fury at religious change, but support for it. These rebels were appallingly betrayed by the government then because the government crushed them and massacred them at Norwich. But they had believed in this new world. All sorts of possible changes were on the horizon. One, for instance, the possibility of uniting with England's greatest enemy, its hereditary enemy, Scotland. It was first in the end of Henry VIII's reign, when it was, ju- it was possible for the first time to conceive that the kingdoms of England and the kingdom of Scotland would unite under a single crown, that of Edward VI marrying the young Mary, Queen of Scots. This was the, the, the government's plan. And along with it came an enormous amount of rhetoric directed at the Scots saying, this is a project about religion. We have, shown, we have thrown off the papal yoke. We will help you throw off the papal yoke. And it is extraordinary that even after the English invaded and wrecked southern Scotland, there were still Scotsmen who rallied to that call. 
who felt that it was convincing. This was the beginning of that great Protestant partnership between the two kingdoms, which has, of course, unraveled in the last 50 years. But it started off in this moment of excitement in the 1550s. So, uh, a great change in the nation. Other change is possible. Uh, After all, clergy had one new exciting possibility, getting married. And many of them, who were quite clearly not Protestants in any other sense, did get married because they wanted to. And that went with a much wider change in the possibilities of marriage, one which was not actually completed but started on the road and was abruptly halted. The possibility of divorce... Now, it may seem strange to associate divorce with the Protestant Reformation, but it's a theological point. Uh, In in the Catholic system of sacraments, seven sacraments, marriage is one sacrament. It is therefore indissoluble. It cannot end. And there is no possibility of divorce within uh, Catholic theology. Uh, Henry VIII, of course, uh, never got divorced. And uh, he only had annulments of marriages. You can annul marriages, but you cannot divorce and Henry had three wives. In fact, the other marriages never happened in his eyes. Um, But now, Protestants say that marriage is not a sacrament. It is simply uh, a contract between two people, blessed by God, yes, but if the two people do not wish to remain married, then they should part. Not a good thing, but possible. And clearly this excited a lot of people uh, in desperately unhappy marriages in the 1540s and 50s. And so this is one of the possible ways forward. This is a world where anything might be possible. It is a world of liberty, that great Protestant word from, Michael, from Martin Luther onwards. A world in which there is a sense in which uh, an enslaving church, a church which has even given you a false picture of the past, is now being overturned. That's then the excitement of being a Protestant in the reign of Edward VI. We've also seen the problem of being a traditionalist. At what point do you say enough is enough? At what point do you cease to compromise? It was not at all clear to anyone at the time. And and so a swirl of emotions stretching across the entire kingdom through the reign of Edward VI. A sense of excitement. It's also a sense of danger, of worry about authority, all question marks up against the traditional authority of the church. What is the point in believing in the church's dogmas? Can you accept the authority of the church courts? It's very noticeable in mid-century, the drop in attendance rate at church courts, the, uh, the ability of church courts to enforce their judgment, drops sharply in the reign of Edward VI because people clearly don't respect the authority of the church. And it is not surprising when the clergy of this Church of England were bitterly assailing each other. Protestants and Catholics occupying the same church, Protestants accusing the Catholic clergy of being sodomites, the Protestant and the Catholic clergy accusing uh, the Protestant clergy of being only interested in women. Uh, there was an interesting phrase, which has now completely changed its meaning, bishops effeminate. Cranmer, Latimer, and Ridley were accused by their Catholic opponents of being bishops effeminate, which meant that they loved women too much. See, the word has completely gone through 90 degrees since then. (laughs) But think what it means when these authority figures are absolutely at each other's throats. What does that do for authority? And there is a greater fear still that there may be more radical people 
than Cranmer, Latimer, and Ridley out there. Back in the 1530s, the great city of Münster in Germany had been overtaken by Anabaptists, radicals, who had installed a regime which descended through a siege into a nightmare and was eventually massacred. And that image of Minster remained with the people of Europe all through the century, even though most religious radicals were in fact peaceable people who had no interest in overturning society at all. The image was there. And it is interesting that in the reign of King Edward VI, no Catholic died for his or her religion. Plenty of rebels died, but no Catholic was executed for being a Catholic. But three Protestants were. Three Protestants were burnt at the stake by the Protestant government of King Edward VI for being radical, for denying the Trinity, uh, rather, in fact, than their uh, views on baptism. That is the extent of the, uh, the, the uh, absolute terror of Edwardian government against what it had unleashed uh, within England. And then, of course, the young king died in 1553, and his replacement was his half-sister, Queen Mary. And one might read Mary's accession as a triumph for popular Catholicism, because one of the most curious features of Queen Jane Grey's overthrow was the way in which ordinary people rose up against her regime. Every foreign ambassador in 1553 believed that Queen Jane was the future. The view from London was that she had got it made. She had the entire navy, the forces of artillery in the Tower of London. Every major politician had sworn loyalty to her across the country. She was home and dry. And then ordinary people rose against her, notably in East Anglia. There are a set of extraordinary stories about what they did, the most bizarre of which concerned the 13th Earl of Oxford, John de Vere, 13th, 15th Earl of Oxford, I'm sorry, lived at Castle Headingham in Essex. And as all the other leaders of the political nation in England did, he swore loyalty to Queen Jane. But his servants were not having it. They rounded up the two commissioners who'd come to, ta- to uh, get him to take the oath, threw them in a, a, a room in Castle Headingham, bundled the 15th Earl of Oxford onto his horse, and pointed him northwards towards the camp of the Lady Mary at Framingham Castle and said, Right, you get up to Mary and you swear loyalty to her, Your Honour. <laughs> and all over East Anglia you can spot the gentry bewildered by this uprising of fury. So does that contradict everything I've said? Does it mean that the people of East Anglia were in fact fervent Catholics? No, I do not think it does. Because these people were not responding to a call to Catholicism. They were responding to a call from Henry VIII's daughter against someone who, although her claim to the throne was not at all bad, Queen Jane had a decent claim to the throne, she was not the old man's daughter, the mana of that man, this Tudor Stalin, dominated the minds of his subjects. And when the Lady Mary appealed to them, she did not say, I am a good Catholic, I will bring back the old religion. She said, I am the daughter of King Henry. Blood of his blood, bone of his bone. And that was what got her on the throne. 
The people of Norfolk and Suffolk and Essex who rose were, many of them, Protestants. And in fact, they pointed this out to the Queen two years after she had come to the throne as she started burning Protestants. Uh, we have a letter in Fox's Book of Martyrs, which can be relied on in most respects for its documents, a letter from a group of East Anglians saying, we fought for you in 1553, and now you are persecuting us. I think this is an extremely significant moment, because what actually the coup d'etat of Queen Mary in 1553 tells us was that England was appallingly divided in religion by that stage. It was not a matter of a, a tiny minority of Protestant politicians and a few enthusiasts on the Protestant side and then a nation which was uh, passively traditionist. This was a nation passionately divided down the middle between very angry traditionalists and very enthusiastic Protestants. And the proof of that is exactly Mary's strategy. She did not appeal to Catholics. She appealed to the subjects of King Henry VIII. And I will pile proof on that by looking at the first rebellion in Mary's reign by Sir Thomas Wyatt in Kent, in January 1554. Sir Thomas Wyatt and a set of Kentish leaders rose in rebellion. Uh, their reason, ostensible reason, was to stop the Queen marrying a Spaniard. Now, we know, if we look at all these leaders, that they were, in fact, the remnants of the Edwardian elite, the Protestant elite of uh, the previous regime, bishops included. But they said nothing about Protestantism in their propaganda, just as Mary had said nothing about Catholicism in hers. And in both cases, you can see exactly why. They wanted to maximize their possible support. So they put it in the one term which would appeal to people, a political term. First, Mary saying, I'm Henry VIII's daughter. Then Wyatt saying, we don't want the Queen to marry a Spaniard. These are political statements because they know the country is so divided. England was not yet a Protestant country in 1553. But a very substantial proportion of it, too large to ignore, already was. And then the events of Mary's reign, short as it was, were precisely calculated in the end to maximize that Protestantism. If Mary had been on the throne for 45 years, like her sister, Elizabeth, then a counter-reformation could have happened here, as it happened in the Habsburg lands uh, in the 1600s, 1620s. But Mary only had five years and crucially, the big thing she did during that time, despite everything that Eamon Duffy says, all the good things that she did about propaganda, the big thing which stuck in the English mind was the burnings. Let me, in, with complete political incorrectness, bring you back to those burnings. The things which stuck in the minds of the people of England, the fires of Smithfield. If anything turned a situation which was on a knife edge in 1553 back towards Protestantism, it was the mistakes of Mary's reign. There, I've done it, I'm afraid. I've brought you back to the traditional historiography of England. But I hope it's slightly more subtle than it was. And I hope also there is a sense that, that uh, built into it is the feeling that it need not have been like that. That uh, if you think that Vienna was the most Protestant city in Central Europe in 1610, and that by the end of the 17th century it was one of the most Catholic, that could also have been true of London. Protestant 
strongly Protestant already in the 1540s, what would have happened? What would Shakespeare's plays have been like? Lots of other fascinating questions with which I will leave you at this time. (laughs) 